there's this scene, and I, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen this. So here's this guy being lowered down. They've messed up the roof. They've broken the roof. So there's probably dust all over the place. He's probably scared to death, right? Imagine like being lowered right there, and Jesus is like, what's this? And this guy can't move, and he's just you know, sitting up looking with dust all over his face, staring up at Jesus. It's great to be here with everyone this this evening. Uh, it's been a little while with all of the August travels, so we're picking up again back in Matthew. So if you could open up to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 9. I'm reading here from the New King James. So... He got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Son of Man. We thank you for the authority that you have given to him. Father, I pray that we would understand his incredible authority to forgive sins, to to touch us in the deepest places of who we are to release us from the, the grip of the forces that have, have bound us and, and put us into positions of subjugation. I, fa- I pray, Father, that as we look at these words, that we would have a new confidence in the Son of Man and a new confidence, a fresh confidence in his authority over our lives as disciples. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start just by reviewing some of the context and some of the structure of Matthew. It's been a while, like I said, since we've been here looking at this. So I want you to just, in your Bible, flip with me and just, we're going to stay mostly in Matthew. I think actually entirely in Matthew. But I want to to set the stage here. Look at Matthew 4.23, and you'll see why we're jumping back to Matthew 4.23. Matthew 4.23. 23 reads, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Okay, so pay attention to that wording. Now look at the end of Matthew 9. This is um, actually verse 35, not quite the end, but near the end of Matthew 9, where it says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. 
Okay, do you, you see that those are like almost the identical verse at the end of Matthew 4 and at the end of Matthew 9? So I know most of you, especially at Sattler, know what literary device this is. It is an example of... Yeah, I heard somebody say it. What? Inclusio, right. Inclusio is where you have something repeated at, that kind of it brackets a structure. It's, it's sort of, it shows you the beginning and the end. And here, when, whenever you have something, especially that's near word for word identical, it shows you where something starts and where something stops. Okay, so that Matthew 4.23 is right before the Sermon on the Mount. And then Matthew 9.35 is right near the end of Matthew 9. So what we have then is this big block of material between those two verses, between Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. Okay, and in fact, the way to think about this is as follows. Okay, so those, those two verses, like I said, mark the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the end of this block here in Matthew 8 to 9. Okay, and... Matthew 5 to 7, of course, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is Jesus' most famous sermon. And here, there's different names for it. One person I've told you called the Sermon on the Move. Uh, but it's a, it's a tight group of miracles here. So I'll just say here a collection of miracles. And if you remember, when I started Matthew chapter 8, I told you there's actually 10 different miracles that are told in Matthew 8 to 9. It's 10 miracles in nine different stories. Okay, so there's 10 examples of healings or supernatural deeds set across nine stories over here. Now, this particular structure here, and this is a very weird name that I'm I know Laura knows this, but this has widely been recognized for years and years to be this type of structure here. Uh, so this is called, I mean, know how to pronounce this word even? <laughs> it's, it's a diptych, a diptych. So what is a diptych? It's an odd word. It comes from Greek. You've all seen a diptych before. A diptych is something where you go like, to a museum and there's like two paintings that are joined by a hinge and you... You, you can open that hinge or close that hinge. The, the official definition of a diptych is any object with two flat, pa- flat plates which form a pair often attached by a hinge. Okay? So you have here Jesus in Matthew 5 to 7, mighty in word. And then in Matthew 8 to 9, Jesus mighty in deed. And so you can think about it like these two facing panels here. And these... Miracles here. We spent a lot of time. We have dozens of messages that I, I gave on the Sermon on the Mount. But the Matthew 8 to 9 has a really, really great structure as well to it. So it is structured, if we, if we just kind of zoom in here on this, as three sets of three miracle stories. So it's three sets of three. Like I said, there's actually 10 healings in there, but it's three sets of three. And every set of three concludes with a statement on discipleship. Okay, so the first, 
and this is review. Some of you were here, some of you were not, but just by way of review, the first set of three was three healings. Jesus healed a leper. Jesus healed a Gentile. And then Jesus healed a woman, Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, so this was about these miracles that crossed boundaries that normally are not crossed. And then right after that, there's a, a, a story that Jesus gives on discipleship where somebody comes to him and says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And there's actually two little stories there about basically the cost of discipleship. So there's a story here on discipleship. Okay, so that's the first set of three. The next set of three on this right-hand side of our diptych is Jesus doing a miracle over nature. Remember how he stills the raging seas? Then he casts out the demoniac, so he shows authority over demons. And then here, he's going to show authority over sin. So authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over sin. And then right after this, there's going to be, we're not going to cover it today, but he's going to give uh, a small teaching on discipleship. And then there's going to be three more miracles and another teaching on discipleship. So it's, it's actually a very beautiful organization that Matthew puts on, on Jesus' teachings here, all in this, in this diptych. And it, it reinforces, both reinforce one another. And I've highlighted this a few times as I've gone through Matthew 8 and 9, how it goes back and reinforces different teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so, so that's where we're at in terms of structure here. Now, so we're going to look now at the third miracle story in the second set. That's what we're reading today in this Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Okay, so hopefully everybody is tracking with me. So let's, let's work through this here. So verse 1, it says that Jesus returns back to his own city. And hopefully everyone remembers that Jesus' home city used to be Nazareth, but now he's moved to Capernaum. Right, he's moved back to Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. That's his new base of operations. So that's, that was recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. We won't read that. And then verse 2 describes what happens when he gets back. Okay, so really, really famous story here. So a group of people bring a paralytic on a bed to Jesus. Uh, Their names are not given. And Matthew is very sparse on details here, but we all know the story from Mark that this actually happens in a home and these individuals make a hole in the roof and they lower this paralytic down in front of Jesus, okay? So it's an incredible story uh, that, that I really appreciate and enjoy and I'm inspired by. And I love the expression in verse two, where it says that Jesus saw their faith, pistin um, afton, so their faith. So their faith was something that Jesus saw. So notice that, it's, their faith is, is visible. Uh, their faith was action-oriented. Jesus could see it. It wasn't just, Jesus sometimes perceived thoughts, but here, Jesus is actually observing their faith. Okay, so my first point, I'm going to give you four points from this, is that Jesus is moved by visible intercessory faith. I'm going to call it intercessory faith. Okay, so 
We don't know a lot about these individuals here. I wish we knew more. But the picture that I have is that they're friends of this paralytic. And maybe they helped him get around. Maybe, I mean, somebody who's completely paralyzed has a lot of needs. And it says that not just one person had faith, but multiple people had faith. And it's, there's something about this sight of a group of people that have faith together towards this common goal that Jesus is moved by. It, it's something that impresses Jesus. Uh, many of us just came from two baptisms this afternoon, and I'm still riding a high from that. It was, it was incredible, and how, how the wind kicked up right when, just like your baptism, was amazing. The wind kicked up right at the baptism as they went into the water, the look of joy. It was something that was visible faith. You could see it. There was, it wasn't just thinking nice thoughts or having nice ideas. In Hebrews 11, Abraham's faith offers up Isaac. Noah's faith builds the ark. These are very visible concepts. So the question is, is what does our faith look like? What does your faith look like? It shouldn't be something, like I said, that's just nice ideas or clever thoughts or deep, ponderous ruminations. It should be something that is able to be seen. Chrysostom points out that their faith, he believes, includes the faith of the paralytic as well. That it's not just the people carrying him and the guy's like, no, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. It's like he, he, he thinks that's probably right that he's cooperating. Maybe it was even his idea uh, to go here. So it's their faith. It's a collaborative effort. And their faith almost like adds up. It's like vectors lining up here. And this corporate demonstration of faith is what moves Jesus. And all throughout church history, people have taken this as a picture of intercession, as a picture of corporately coming together and lifting someone up or lowering someone down in this case uh, for the sake of some need here. And I think it's a good challenge because for all of us, we can probably think of one individual that we would love to see have some significant change in his or her life. Uh, My wife and I have been talking about this in our home, about one individual we would love to see some profound change happen to. And this is an opportunity, right, to go together, to be like the carriers of this of this bed and go to Jesus and, and to uh, ask him to, to change this person, to, to make a breakthrough in this person's life. I will point out one, one little tidbit here because I think it's an insightful observation that people have also pointed out that if your house is going to be a house of ministry, things will get broken. Um, um, so in this case, most people actually think this was Simon Peter's house. We don't know for sure, but it was somebody's house who was hosting Jesus. And this will be the case of anyone whose home is a place of ministry. In this case, the roof got broken. Um, be prepared for that. Uh, there's a good little embedded lesson in that. All right. That's not, that's not one of my main points though. All right. So I love what happens next in this. So there's this scene, and I, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen this. So here's this guy being lowered down. They've messed up the roof. They've broken the roof. So there's probably dust all over the place. He's probably scared to death, right? Imagine like being lowered right there, and Jesus is like, what's this? And this guy can't move, and he's just you know, sitting up looking with dust all over his face, staring up at Jesus. 
And Jesus, ever the pastoral figure, says, and the New King James says, son, be of good cheer. The word is, is actually, it, it's, I don't love that translation. It's, uh, it's thodacy is the first word he says. Yeah, I'm seeing some nodding of heads. And technon is, is the word that he uses there for, for son. So the word thodacy is translated by the New King James, be of good cheer. The ESV, I looked it up. I think it had something like take heart. Yeah, take heart. Uh, is what it uses. But those are both kind of weak. So just to give you a sense of how this word is used, I looked it up in BDAG, and BDAG says, said, be courageous. Uh, and so the very first time it's used in the Septuagint, the midwife speaks it to Rachel when she's giving birth to Benjamin. And hey, that's a great picture. If you've ever seen a woman who is giving birth, like that requires a lot of courage and fortitude. Moses uses it when they're standing right at the brink of the Red Sea and all of the Egyptian armies are chasing them. And it says, Moses said to the people, Thodacy, be of good courage, stand and see the salvation which is from the Lord, which he will work for us this day. For as ye have seen the Egyptians today, ye shall see them again no more forever. So picture that scene. You got all these chariots and everybody pursuing you. And Moses is there saying, take courage, everyone. And then Elijah uses it when he speaks to the widow. He says, Tharsi, be of good courage. Go in and make me thereof a little cake. And that whole story where he wants the, the widow to make just a little bit that she has for Elijah, right? So it's a word that isn't just like be happy or something like that. It's like be courageous here. Uh, so I love that. And I think that fits well, this picture of this paralytic man who's there probably very scared as he's laying in front of Jesus. I'll make one quick comment on the word technon. This is definitely not a main point here, but we've been talking about this word quite a bit and came up again on Wednesday. The word is, is, has several different meanings. It can be, mean an offspring of human parents. This is from BDAG. Descendants of a common ancestor, descendants or posterity. One who is dear to another, but without genetic relationship and without distinction in age. And then one who has characteristics of another being, children of God, i.e. children of God, children of peace, children of wrath. So it's less about biological descent. And so this is important as we talk about the distinction between technon and paideon or pais or some of those words there. So here I think it's clearly a term of affection, someone who's dear to Jesus, but without genetic relationship and without distinction in age. Okay, so here we are in this scene. So picture it again. So you're, try to, try to picture that you're this guy, right? So you're, you're there, you're laying there, you can't move. You're laying on this bed, you're just staring up, all dirty, scared. Jesus is now looking at you. You've interrupted whatever sermon he was just giving. And you're thinking, I hope this works. I really hope this works. Uh, and you're thinking, okay, I don't know how, we don't know how old he is, but this person... He can't walk. He, he can't be married. He can't have children. He can't go to the temple. He can't care for himself. He can't prepare his own food. This guy's desperate, right? This is a person, desperate needs, who's driven to extreme measures. And then Jesus stands over him and says, your sins are forgiven. Okay, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm this person, if I'm honest, I'm thinking, uh, I didn't come here for that. <laughs> I came here to be healed, and you're talking about my sins be forgiven. That sounds nice, but that's not actually why I'm here. And like, hello, Jesus, I'm, I can't walk. Don't you see my obvious need here, right? 
So what's going on here? Jesus must have known that they were asking for healing in this, in this bold deed that they had just ventured out to do. And Jesus turns around and says, your sins are forgiven. One, one person, Colin Smith, points out something that I really appreciate, which is an observation that you hear this a lot in mission settings. In, in mission settings, a lot of people will say things like, don't preach to someone who has an empty stomach. Has anybody ever heard that phrase or something sort of like it? Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of become this, this truism that people bat around, this idea that you can't really get to spiritual matters until you first addressed physical needs. So let's say, like, make sure everyone's got food and health care and all those types of things. And a lot of missions has actually been steered much more towards more social causes because of these kinds of statements that get constantly stated. So basically people say, address physical needs first, then people will be open to receive spiritual needs. But here, what does Jesus do? He does, he does the exact opposite, right? Here's a guy who has complete need, dirty, dusty, dropped through the ceiling, hoping for healing, and Jesus talks about forgiveness of sins. I will say that the church, especially in the last 150 years or so, has had increasing pressure to take her eye off of the sin problem and, and have it be locked into more material problems, that are, which are real problems. Is getting medicine good? Of course. Is feeding people good? Of course. But it misses the first things. Jesus here doesn't get thrown off here. Jesus addresses first needs, that the first and primary need of this individual is forgiveness. So my second point is that your greatest personal need is forgiveness from sin. Okay, so so why then does Jesus say this? Why in the world does Jesus take this guy who is laying there and says, your sins are forgiven. So I just said, it's because that's really his greatest need. But it's really relevant for a couple of reasons. The first is that sin is ultimately behind sin and death. Okay, so this is a really tricky area here. And you can can easily say it wrong. So I'm going to try not to. Uh, I'm not saying that sin is the cause of every disease. I'm definitely not saying that. We have very clear examples in the Bible where that's taught against. Job is one example, right? The whole book of Job is about how it was not his personal sin that caused his ailments. In Luke 13, there's a story where a tower collapses and a bunch of people die and they go to Jesus and Jesus says, don't say these people were worse sinners than everybody else. And then, of course, the famous story of the blind man in in John 9. Everyone's like, hey, did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, no, no, that's that's not it here. So we have at least those very clear, strong examples to the contrary, where there's not a linking of personal sin to personal disease. But at the same time, if you look at Matthew 8, 17, just a few verses up from where we read, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, one of the most famous chapters in the whole Old Testament, where he says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself 
took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So Isaiah 53 is this passage about redemption and forgiveness. But here it's applied towards bodily healings. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. I'll read you another one. You don't have to turn to this. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Isn't that interesting? They're directly paralleled there, iniquities and diseases. In Deuteronomy 28, we definitely won't read that, but there's this long chapter and basically says, if you sin, you're going to have this disease and this problem and this disease and that. There's a clear connection in Deuteronomy 28 between sin and disease and problems there. 1 Corinthians 11, people sin at the Lord's table and some of them die. There's a very real connection there of sin to death. In John 5, Jesus heals this man at the pool of Siloam. And Jesus tells the man, stop sinning because if you go on sinning, something worse is going to happen to you. It's very interesting that he ends that. He heals the person and says, hey, don't go on sinning. If you do, you're going to get into a worse, worse disease, a worse condition. And I would make the case in an ultimate sense, going way back to Genesis 3, we learn that sin and death, that disease and death flow from sin. That at the very beginning of it all, the whole problem of corruption and disease and death came directly from sin. So, so there is a close relationship there. So the way that I synthesize this is that, is by saying sin is the ultimate cause of sin and disease. And sometimes, but not always, the proximate cause of individual sin and disease. Okay, now it takes tremendous discernment and wisdom to figure out, you know, what case and, and is an example of that causality and what's not. Uh, so I'm not making any kinds of general statements there. People get themselves into trouble when they are overly simplistic and overly crass. So like in a lot of charismatic settings that I came from, people make this one-to-one like, hey, there's a, there's a sin problem, which is why you have a disease. We shouldn't say that. But then some people flip to the other extreme and there's no connection at all. And there's, there's almost this like overreaction there. So we want to be in a biblical position there. And so, so in a lot of ways, what we have here in this beautiful story is Jesus doing what it says he's going to do in Matthew 1, 21, when it's, he gives him the name Jesus the angel says, call his, his, his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So we're starting to see that manifest right here in this, in this story. Okay, so I want to say a little bit more about even the line that Jesus tells this paralytic when he says, your sins are forgiven. So I know a lot of you have taken Greek in the room, so you can guess what is the word that Jesus uses when he uses the word forgiven? What's that? Oh, you already looked. Yeah, so if you already looked, don't say. Afiemi, uh, right. So that's, that's, the, that's the right word. So afiemi is the word. It's a, a very, very common word. And it's translated here as forgive. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad translation. I think that's a fine translation. However, there's a problem. The problem is that afiemi is a word that's one of these, like, big words that has multiple dimensions to the word that in English, we don't have one word that's as big of a container. So I've mentioned this 
about the word like angelos, where the word angelos is messenger and angel, both human and, and like we don't have a word that can like hold all those categories at the same time. And so it's really hard for us in English because we want to think when we think when we hear the word angel, we think of like some shiny being with wings and we think of messenger, we think of a human. We don't have one word that joins those two together. The word afiemi is a really important word. So I'll, and I'll, it's been used multiple times already in Matthew. So the first time it's used is in Matthew 4.11 where it says, the devil left him. That's at the temptations. So it's used there for leave. So it's obviously not the devil forgave him. It's used in Matthew 4.20. They left their nets. So when the people leave their nets, when Simon and Andrew, they leave their nets, they afiemi their nets. When Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, leave your gift at the altar, says, afes, it's the imperative form of afiemi here, leave your gift at the altar. Um, interestingly, in this cluster of miracles here, it was already used in Matthew 8, 15, where it says, the fever left her. So the fever that Simon Peter's mother-in-law had, it afiemied her, it left her. Okay, so the word afiemi can mean release, leave, permit, forgive. It contains all those ideas all at the same time. And again, we don't have any word like that in English that contains all that. So like I said, I'm not disagreeing with the translation forgive here, but it omits something really important here, which is that we we generally don't have the sense that permeates, especially the Old Testament, but even the New that sin is an objective reality that like sticks to you. <laughs> that's a part of you. Um, okay, so we, I think we know the book of Leviticus well enough to know that the picture of sin in Leviticus is almost like a stain or a defilement or a disease or something on you and you have to cleanse it off of you. It's, it's like stuck to your body and you have to do various things to get that sin off of you. So, we typically miss the force of verses like in 1 John when it says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin, right? Like, because we just don't think of sin as this objective stuff that's all over us and like messing us up. But we should. It is an offense against God. So don't get me wrong. I'm not at all minimizing in any way the concept that sin is a, is a break in a relationship. It's a very important dimension of, of sin for sure but it simultaneously exists alongside an objective picture of sin as this disease, defilement, stain that's on top of you. And so when, when Jesus makes these kinds of statements about your sin is forgiven, it could just as well be something like your sins are being released from you or your sins are departing from you. They're, they're, they're no longer sticking to the person in the same way that that they were before. Okay. So this is a very important thing. This is, this is for a while been a little bit of a hobby horse for me is this word off the and how, how we don't do this. It kind of gets at it in Acts two thirty eight. I think the King James does this. Maybe the new King James does, does too, but it uses the word remission of sins. Be baptized for the remission of sins. That's a little more broad of a word that I think communicates this concept of like, like, get it off of me. Like, there's something that was, was there that should be released. Okay? So, what does this mean? It means that if you were to put on spiritual glasses, if I were to be wearing spiritual glasses right now and be looking out at all of you, 
what you would see, depending on the relative level of sin or righteousness, you would see something on that person, some kind of a disease or stain on them. And just like chicken pox looks different than mumps, looks different from measles, looks different from hives, different sins cause different diseases, so uh, different rashes. So materialism or lust, anger, sloth, anxiety, gluttony, unforgiveness, bitterness, worldliness, people-pleasing, comfort-seeking, cowardice, lots of sins out there, and they all have their own profile. They all have their own reality that sticks to us. Okay? So by forgiving this man's sin, what is Jesus doing? He's getting at the root of the problem. He's releasing him of the offense towards God, the vertical dimension, and he's also objectively removing sin and its consequence from him. Okay? So it's, it's, you all see why this is an important idea, how like we don't want to just think about the forgiveness aspect. The forgiveness aspect is totally there, 100% there, but it's alongside an objective sense of sin. Okay. All right. So Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are released from you. And what happens next? What happens next is the first example of conflict between the religious authorities and Jesus in the book of Matthew. Here it is, right here. It's the very first conflict. Now, it was anticipated in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, but they weren't really there. Here, we actually see their, uh, we see them take offense and there'll be a conflict. Now, I've, I've made this case before that the best translation, the best way to understand the word scribe in modern English would be to use the term scholar. Okay, scholar is probably as close as we can get to the sense of the word scribe. So there are these scholars there, and they are offended. They recognize that the, the, the power that Jesus just exhibited to forgive sins, to release sins, is something that God alone can do. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus makes a a very interesting argument in response to this. And I hope everyone tracks the logic of his argument. It's not that hard, but he basically says, he says, okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And his basic argument is that like, if I go to, if I go to David and I say, your sins are forgiven, well, you have no way to validate if that's true or not. Like I could just be making something up. But if I go to somebody who's paralyzed and I say, like, get up and walk, well, you're going to very quickly know if I'm making up stuff or if I really have accuracy and, and integrity to my words there because he's either going to get up or not. And so Jesus is basically making the argument, I'm going to say the more difficult statement so that you know that the easier statement is true. Okay? That's the logic. So Jesus heals the man. And it's very interesting because the healing miracle is almost like a vehicle to teach us about the authority of the Son of Man. The primary miracle is the forgiveness miracle, but he has to prove that with the healing miracle, okay? I like how one author says it. Christ brings visible facts into the witness box in attestation of his invisible powers, Okay, I'll say that again. Christ brings visible facts into the witness box 
in attestation of his invisible powers. It's very similar to what we see in the book of Acts when there's all these signs and wonders that are done, right? The signs and wonders, they're good and important and meaningful, but they're supposed to authenticate and attest to the validity of the gospel message that is being proclaimed. Okay. So then verse six, Jesus says, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I, I wish the New King James here didn't use the word power. It's exousion here um, in, the, in the accusative. It should be authority. Um, that's, a, that's a much better translation. It's not dunamin here. It's exousion here. And authority is a key word in Matthew. Very, very important word in Matthew. We already saw it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where everyone is amazed because Jesus teaches with authority. He teaches with exousion there not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And then we saw with all of the the miracles on the right side of our diptych here, we see Jesus with authority over disease, over nature, over demons, and now over sin. And then Matthew 28, at the end of the book, Jesus says, all authority, all exousion in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go out and make disciples, right? This is a very important word in Matthew's thinking. All right, so my third point here is that authority compels discipleship. Authority compels discipleship. So I've already told you the structure of this right side here is for Jesus to demonstrate authority over disease and now nature, demons. And then every time there's a concluding teaching on discipleship. Jesus's authority authenticates, it validates his strong claims to discipleship. So Jesus, especially in Matthew, his authority is giving him the ability to call us and ask us to lay down every single facet of our life before him. And Jesus is making a very strong claim on every facet of life. He is making a claim right now as we sit here on what you watch, on where you live, on where you go, on who you talk to, what hobbies you choose, what you read, what you wear, what you eat, what you think about, and whether you live and die. He's making a claim on all those things. And I want us to meditate just for a moment on the significance of the connection between authority and discipleship. There are millions and millions and millions of people out there who say, Jesus is Lord. They make that statement, Jesus is Lord, which is a statement of authority, right? Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord. But it's not really a thoroughgoing understanding, a heart conviction of the magnitude of what Jesus' call really is. Okay? So it's very important for Matthew to demonstrate every slice here of the comprehensive authority that Jesus has over disease, over nature, over, over demons, over sin, so that his call to discipleship will be hammered home for us and we won't be people who compartmentalize away different aspects of who we are. It's easy to say this. It's very difficult to do it. Very difficult to do this. Uh, and I will say in, in my years of, of walking, uh, walking with God that I have seen time and time again that the words Jesus is Lord are often words and they're not matched by 
a comprehensive understanding of this tight connection between authority and discipleship. Now, authority has interesting reactions. Authority either attracts people or it pushes people away. So I I have noticed as I've gotten older and more, uh, have given more responsibility in in hospitals and labs and in companies that in, in my limited authority that I've had in those different settings, that even my limited authority has the same effect. Some people are attracted to it. Some people are, are repulsed by it. Um, it has this very polarizing effect. Some people are drawn to it. Other people react against it. Some people respond well. Others fight against it. Now here Jesus is, the man who wields the highest authority, and he elicits very strong reactions. The same phenomenon plays out. Anybody who has any degree of authority, this will, it will be a, a fork. There will be some people that will respond with, with, uh, with goodwill and, and, and gratitude and other people with a sense of like, I don't want that. Um, and what happens right here is the scribes, the scholars, their reaction to Jesus' authority is one of questioning skepticism, accusation, but the multitudes, their reaction to Jesus' authority is to glorify and, and marvel, glorify God and marvel. Okay, so my, my fourth and final point is worship instead of skepticism is the appropriate response to Jesus' grace. Worship instead of skepticism is the appropriate response to Jesus' grace. Okay, so let's, let's now kind of look carefully at this whole thing. So here's a guy who got lowered down on this, on this pallet, on this little cot here, who's seeking healing. And I can kind of see why the, the scholars, the scribes, would be, would be opposed to this. One is this kinds of things that Jesus is saying about being able to forgive sins, that would have been very offensive. But then also, this guy is like, who is this guy? I mean, like, he's just some random person. He didn't have to do any good deeds. He didn't have to, like, pledge allegiance to Torah or Moses or do anything like that. He just, like, got forgiven on the spot in a very gracious, almost surprising manner. And I can see, I can see myself sitting there thinking, like, Who's this guy to do this? He doesn't deserve it. What's going on here? This makes no sense. I don't like this. I'm going to just call this whole thing blasphemy. The question for all of us as well is how do we react to Jesus's gracious free gift of forgiveness? Is it with skepticism? Is it with hesitation? Can Jesus really do that? Can Jesus really forgive her? Can Jesus really forgive him? Can Jesus really forgive me? These demonstrations of grace, of God's free gift, has always provoked strong reactions, and it continues to do so today. I want to challenge us on this because sometimes sometimes it's very easy to fall into postures of skepticism when God is doing something really incredible that defies our categories and our, our understandings. This is going to happen a lot in Matthew, and it's happening right in this very passage. 
In contrast to that, let's look at the final verse here in verse 8. I love how it's described, how the multitudes respond. Now, when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power, such, and guess what word this is? Exousion again, to to people, to to men. Uh, So what I want to point out here is that the multitudes are, are the ones who respond with attraction to Jesus' authority. And I, I hope and I pray that jubilant, enthusiastic awe, praise, worship will be our reaction to the Son of Man's authority who wants to release us and forgive us from our sins. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the authority that has been vested with the Son of Man, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he, he is the one to whom we owe our, our entire lives to, every facet of who we are, every, every word that we speak, every place that we visit, every website that we choose to visit are all supposed to be in homage, in, in reverence, in submission to the Son of Man. I pray that we would understand this beautiful connection that is being woven throughout this section on authority and discipleship, and that we would also marvel and rejoice at the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus, our, our great and merciful high priest, wants to, to shower on all of us. May we not re- react with skepticism and hesitation and questioning but rather with worship and with awe, celebrating the the deep forgiveness that we have in Jesus. We praise you that there is no God like you, that you are the one who loves to forgive our sins, uh, that you are a gracious and forgiving God, full of compassion and mercy and love towards us. And we pray all these things in the name of the Son of Man. Amen. Amen.